Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, embattled radio host Lee Garrett has found romance with CNIB worker Candace Ross, but his enemies are still unknown, and as Lee and police detective Davis discover, there are far too many suspects. Now, Chapter 17. The air crackled in his nostrils as he opened the car door, and he blew a cloud of steam just to watch it disperse. The sky was a crisp blue, but the winter Saturday quiet was shredded by the whines and growls of snow machines. Dozens of every make and color were parked around the lot, waiting for their turn to fly over the frozen lake nearby. Lee didn't ride in the Easter Seal snoworama every year. CTBX and Z104 partnered in a half-dozen snowmobile events each winter, but usually it was their community cruiser reporter who was assigned to show up for them. Lee had never owned a sled, never had the spare time to make owning one worth the cost. Especially with the warming winters, some of his neighbors only used theirs once or twice a year, riding an $8,000 toy along a packed snow track to a rundown hotel for a few quick beers, then riding back. He enjoyed it when he did ride, but Snowarama was about raising money, and he'd done his bit for that by giving the event a lot of on-air mentions and an interview. His participation in the ride itself was just a promotional opportunity for the radio station. Tarry log walls gave the outside of the old building a rustic look, but the inside had been renovated within the past ten years. A billow of warm, humid air enveloped him. In the ground-level hall, dozens of riders sat around stackable wood and metal tables, devouring breakfasts of pancakes, scrambled eggs and sausages, and coffee, lots of coffee. It was beyond Lee's understanding how some people could fill their bellies with liquid and then spend hours on a jolting snow machine. The food was free to all riders, but he gave it a pass. Instead, he strode up the stairs, flattening himself against the wall a couple of times to allow Pillsbury Doughboy shapes in black and navy to pass by in the opposite direction. The upstairs reminded Lee of a primary school gymnasium with a modest stage and wooden floor. Cheap tables were flanked by plastic chairs, but most of those were obscured by sprawled weekend trail warriors, their snowmobile suits spread open to reveal cotton turtlenecks and fishermen's knit sweaters. The gathering looked like a celebration of Bad Hair Day, an earlier grooming erased by helmets or toques. One exception was a good-looking blonde from the local TV station doing an interview with a man Lee recognized as the Snowarama chairman, Reg Mahood. Beside Mahood were the Easter Seals ambassadors, a young boy in a wheelchair and a pre-teen girl standing with the help of leg braces and crutches. Lee had met the kids a number of times and was always amazed at their cheerfulness in spite of a tough lot in life. They were inspirational. He felt good about being a broadcaster when he could help people like that. It took him a minute to spot Chuck Norwood through the crowd. Barry Wright and Doug Rhodes were with him to complete their four-member team. Hey, Lee, we're just registering. You got the stuff you need okay? I borrowed a helmet from Phil Oates. It's tight, but it'll do. Nice suit, Lee. Ride much? We can't all be fashion gods, Barry. Good to know you'll be wearing a helmet so oncoming riders won't be blinded. Wright was sensitive about his receding hairline. He grunted and looked away. You aren't going to slow us down, are you, Lee? Rhodes asked. I haven't seen the machine they brought for me, Doug, but last I heard it wasn't a race. A tall man in a smart leather outfit came up to them. Norwood did the introductions. 
Lionel Rivers, this is Barry Wright, Doug Rhodes, and Lee Garrett. Lionel's the vice chairman of this year's event. Yeah, the one who does all the work, the other man grinned. Reg Mahood is too busy with the media. He nodded toward the harsh light of the TV camera, but his eyes were on the reporter. Well, somebody has to take a bullet for the team, Wright offered, also admiring the view. You know, Lionel, we count as media, too. Yeah, sure. And, hey, I really appreciate all the coverage you guys gave us. We'll just get you registered. Then can you help out when we make our presentations later? Sure, Norwood nodded. Barry will act as MC, and I'll present the check on behalf of our company. His voice was casual, his face turned away from Lee. So that was how it was going to be. The offer of the restaurant vouchers the day before had just been a bribe to make Lee play nice, but Norwood still planned to treat him like a poor relative with the clap. Why have Lee come at all? How many people would recognize him on the trail with a helmet over his head? Norwood was definitely back on his shit list. On the other hand, with no official task to perform, Lee wouldn't have to stick around after the ride. That was worth something. The crowded room was dotted with familiar faces. Most were friendly. City Councilor Vic Foligno, George Brickman, the car dealer, Ray Carver, the president of the local community college. He'd try to avoid Andre Menard and Elliot Dean. Ken Cousins was probably around, too, in this season's newest snowmobile suit and perfect hair in spite of his helmet. A profile across the room caught Lee's eye. It looked like Van Horn, the cocky bastard from the United Way luncheon. Lee waited for the head to turn in his direction, but it turned away instead. Short haircuts were a dime a dozen. He was probably just being paranoid. Norwood walked up. Okay, ready to go? Let's hit the trail. Doesn't Reg Mahood want all of the media teams to leave at the same time for the photo op? Lee asked. Shit, that could be an hour from now, Wright complained. That chick and her cameraman are the only people from TV so far. I don't think all of the newspaper guys are here either. Let's just go. Hell yeah, Rhodes agreed. Besides, if we all leave together, the trail's going to be like Notre Dame Avenue after the bingo lets out. I feel the need for speed. Lee considered letting them leave without him, but then he'd be the main topic of conversation, and the thought pissed him off. The track shop had brought a bright green Arcticat F570 for him, a rental unit a few years old. Usually they had him show off one of the newest models, but maybe those were in short supply because winter had started early. Lee had ridden the older Z570 model before, so the controls were familiar. He was grateful for the electric start, and the engine was already warmed up. It revved smoothly as he squeezed the throttle a few times. His co-workers were ready and waiting, but he took another few seconds to make sure his helmet was secure and his throat completely covered by the fabric face shield. The icy air was already hungry for his body heat. Snowmobile speeds would make it ravenous. He pulled the visor down and gave the thumbs up, his hand hadn't even dropped before his teammates were racing down the ramp onto the lake. He goosed the throttle and felt the front skis lift off the snow. It would take a while to get the hang of the machine. He caught up with the others a few hundred meters down the lake where the trail crossed a road. A bundled-up cop was stopping traffic, stamping his feet to keep warm. The trio shot away again, but Lee's cat could keep up. The weak link wouldn't be the machine, but his rusty driving skills, as Norwood and company ignored the posted trail limit of 50 kilometers per hour. They were surrounded by scenery straight out of a group of seven painting, perfect crests of white slumping over dark evergreen slashes, black-scaled shafts of trunks, and dappled gray rock faces, all of it wasted on them. Lee pitched over a rise and had to squeeze the brake grip hard to avoid running into Doug Rhodes. 
They slowed to cross a rickety-looking log bridge over a creek bed, then sped through a stand of trees and out onto the open surface of a narrow lake, too small to have any cottages on it, but long enough that Norwood, Wright, and Rhodes opened their throttles wide. Lee hit the gas on the Arctic Cat. It kicked ahead with a growling whine, and he felt the wind pull at his suit, whistling around the edges of his visor. A hundred and ten kilometers per hour, faster than the speed limit on the open highway, and his co-workers were still pulling away. He tried not to imagine what would happen to him if the machine tipped over at that speed. He should let the others go ahead without him. The route was well marked, but stubbornness wouldn't let him. The end of the lake was a relief. He braked for the rapidly approaching tree line and slid up over a ridge onto the hard-packed trail again. Doug Rhodes' back was vanishing around a pair of large pines twenty yards ahead. The 570's engine responded smoothly, and the sled cornered well, the handling softer than other makes lead-ridden, but he'd be grateful for that after a long day's ride. Fortunately, the trails had been well-groomed for Snowarama, and his green machine was forgiving on the bumps that remained. They came to another lake. With a grimace, he jammed the throttle all the way to the grip, keeping it there until the muscle in his thumb ached. Patches of deeper snow tugged at one ski and then the other, threatening to tip him. He hurtled into the white plume thrown up by Rhodes' passage, and an image leapt into his mind of Rhodes' machine suddenly appearing out of the cloud, stopped still in the trail. If it were to happen in reality, Lee would be a dead man. The others were insane to go so fast. Why make himself a part of their madness? Was he afraid to lose the respect of people who deserved none from him? Or to lose respect for himself? The next hour was a torture test. Trees, rocks, and deadfalls flew toward him. His throttle hand settled into a fierce ache, and his spine protested the pounding, forcing him to raise his body a few inches from the saddle on the bumps he saw in time. Pain and fatigue stirred in his knees and calves. He was too rigid, his muscles unfamiliar with the physics of the machine's motion, the tension aggravated by shots of adrenaline. The squeeze of the helmet was giving him a pounding headache. His concentration flagged. As he came hard into a sharp right turn, he realized too late that it was more than ninety degrees. He squeezed hard on the brake and threw his weight to the inside of the curve. The rubber and steel track caught at the edge of the trail, but the last few feet of the turn were worn down into a negative bank, right in front of a stand of mature trees. He gave a savage wrench to the handlebars and hung off the saddle on the right side. A shot of throttle at the last moment wasn't enough. He felt the crunch as he clipped a tree trunk. The cat bounced back onto the trail, and he pulled off to the side a few feet farther on to assess the damage. The body of the sled was untouched, but there was an ugly curl about four inches long in the outer edge of the left ski. He'd have some explaining to do. He roared curses that frosted his visor, but he couldn't indulge his fury for long. Another rider could come around the curve at any moment. He climbed back aboard the beast and revved it forward. Anger began to translate into speed. He'd been a fool to come. He could have been with Candace instead. He tried to picture her, but the face in his mind wore a puzzled look. Her mouth turned into a frown. He got the message and eased back on the throttle. His dream Candace was right. Forty years of life should have taught him how to control his testosterone. It was time to take his head out of his ass. He kept the sled to the speed limit. Ten minutes later, he reached the halfway point of the ride. About thirty sleds were pulled up in a clearing beside a weather-worn cabin, so he was still well ahead of the main pack. A dozen riders were standing by their machines or checking them over. Lee's co-workers were in a group of five beside a nearby row, which meant they hadn't arrived much ahead of him. He swung his machine around, killed the engine, and gratefully pulled off his helmet. 
Good to see you didn't get lost, Rhodes said. Too nice a day to waste it breathing in your fumes, Rhodesie. You guys do what you want on the way back. I'll find my way. You don't have to ride alone, Wright said. There's a group of grandmothers almost ready to head out. They're just having a last cup of tea in the shack. The crack drew a laugh, but Lee let it slide. He walked into the cabin feeling a blast of heat like something solid. A huge wood stove lit up the far end of the room, and the air was thick with resiny smoke. Volunteers behind a makeshift counter were serving paper cups of coffee and hot chocolate, and a few half-empty boxes of Timbits sat nearby. Lee offered some waves and greetings to familiar faces under sweat-plastered hair. He nearly laughed at an image in his mind of the immaculately groomed models in snowmobile ads. Nothing could be further from the reality. Scalding his tongue with the first sip of hot chocolate, he fled to the colder air outside. Sweating inside a snowmobile suit could make it frost up on a morning like that. The air was still bitter. He was grateful for the F-570's heated hand grips. He should make conversation with the other snowmobilers, press the flesh, recruit some listeners for his show. Instead, he spent a few minutes going over his machine to make sure he hadn't missed any damage. He didn't relish telling Hal Leonard what had happened. The thick liquid in his cup was already starting to cool, so he swallowed the last of it and looked for a place to empty his bladder. There was only one real outhouse, and unspoken tradition reserved it for the women. The men made do with a trench about thirty feet from the cabin that afforded all the privacy that a six-by-twelve-foot tarpaulin stretched between two trees could provide. Afterward, he looked around for his radio colleagues. Their sleds hadn't moved. They must still be inside. If he started ahead of them, he'd almost certainly face the embarrassment of having them catch up. He did it anyway. His stiffening muscles just wanted to get the whole bloody ride over with and go home for a long, hot bath. He was more than halfway back when trouble found him. It was a change in sound that caught his attention. His first thought was that his engine had malfunctioned. Then he realized the deeper pitch was coming from another snow machine. He turned his head just enough to see it from the corner of his eye, big and black, not surprising that some hot-shot sledder had caught up with him. He looked for a wide section of trail to let the rider pass, but the man couldn't wait. With a roar and a spray of snow, the black machine charged by. He hoped the guy wasn't drunk. Snowarama didn't allow alcohol, but lots of sledders carried their own flasks. This one wasn't weaving. He didn't even race out of sight as Lee expected. A quick glance at the speedometer confirmed that they'd slowed down. What the hell was that about? Was the other rider pissed off at him for making him wait? Without meaning to, Lee closed to within ten meters of the other's tail. He eased back on the throttle. The stranger was leaning forward, and as they came to a long, straight stretch, his head and shoulders dipped a little and his hands left the handlebars. The machine slowed to a crawl. Lee had a sudden fear that the man had suffered a heart attack, but then the figure snapped straight and twisted around, one arm arcing high. A quick glimpse of a dark object tumbling through the air, a stream of glistening droplets, a shocking thump on the green cowl of Lee's sled. He ducked his head, snapping the steering bar hard to the right and goosed the throttle. He had a moment to register the other machine leaping forward, and the projectile vanishing over his shoulder out of his field of vision. He began to swivel on the saddle for a look when a wave of heat and noise hammered into him and tossed him like trash into the snow. A gasp turned into a grunt of fear as he tried to push scalding air back out of his lungs, his arms reflexively shielding his eyes. What the hell? A boulder only meters away was enveloped in flame that bloomed into the clear sky on a stalk of black smoke. Heat grilled his face where the visor had pulled away in his fall. 
An explosion. Some kind of goddamned explosion. Bewildered, he looked at the bright flames as they licked over the rock and spread to some shrubs on either side. It was a moment somehow divorced from reality. Dimly, he lifted his head and saw the other snow machine stopped about fifteen meters away, the rider faceless behind a black visor, watching him. A curious tableau of fire and ice. Then a gauntleted hand moved, sending a spark of reflected light. From what? A bottle? Time began again as Lee threw his body into motion, furious at his laggard muscles. His machine had coasted to a stop a few meters away, still idling. He leapt aboard, wrenched it sideways, and twisted the throttle savagely to slew the tail around, away from his attacker. Fingers of fire reached for him as the machine shot past the burning bushes, and he felt the heat through the plastic visor and padded suit. When he could spare a look back, he saw the black snowmobile vault through a wall of smoke, coming after him. It was a race he could not win. He cannoned into curves and chutes and caromed off banks, barely maintaining control, as terrified at the prospect of an oncoming sled as he was by the death that chased him. They were heading back toward the shack, toward a place his brain associated with safety, but right into the main pack of riders. He heard the other sled's engine. His pursuer must be only meters behind. Ready to attack again? What the hell had the bastard thrown? It had looked like a bottle trailing something from the top. A Molotov cocktail? Gasoline, a bottle, and a wick? Easy to come by, easy to handle. Except for someone riding a snow machine at high speed, he'd have to stop to light the wick. Otherwise, Lee was dead. That meant the man would try to get by and cut him off, or force him off the trail into the scrub and deeper snow. Lee would have to block him and pray they didn't meet a machine coming the other way. He began to weave between the banks, hearing the drone of the machine behind him rise and fall as its rider tried to find a way around. He probably wouldn't ram. A bent ski or damaged cowling would invite questions. On a short straightaway, Lee risked another glance backward. The black wedge was right there, the faceless mask of its master motionless and emotionless, like a robot behind the windscreen. There was no sign of a bottle. Likely it was tucked between the rider's knees, impotent without a lit wick. Lee turned forward again, and his heart froze. Another machine coming straight for him. Banking off a curve, the big yellow sled was steering right into his path. He barely had time to register its presence before his arms jerked the steering bar over and threw his sled up the left bank of the curve. The top ski lost purchase. His snowmobile teetered on the brink, then recovered its equilibrium by a miracle. A flash-frozen image of yellow metal and astonished faces burned into his brain, an old man and a young child whose leisurely outing threatened to come to a shattering end. He braced himself for the sound of death as the innocents collided with his nemesis behind. But it didn't happen. As his own sled leveled, he risked a look back. The yellow snowmobile was stopped, but safe. The black machine of his enemy hadn't made the curve. It was over the bank in deeper snow. Already its implacable rider was climbing off the saddle to pull the skis around and continue the pursuit. The sled probably had the power to climb out of the drift. Lee couldn't afford to wait. He dug his foot into the trail and spun his arctic cat around again. He didn't dare continue toward traffic. That was tempting fate too far. Instead, he shot past the stalled yellow snowmobile and its stunned riders and willed his machine to give him everything it had. Minutes later, he began to shake. He felt nauseous. Dizzy, his arms and legs drained of their strength by the aftermath of the adrenaline that had scalded every nerve in his body. Mindless panic retreated, but with the return of reason came a sudden understanding that made him cry out in shock. Oh, God, no! 
A lifeline had been thrown to him and he hadn't recognized it because it had looked like death. The yellow snowmobile, other riders, safety in numbers. Why hadn't he just stayed with the old man and the child? The maniac on the black machine wouldn't have been willing to kill two innocents just to get Lee Garrett, would he? Despair swept through him like ice water. The moment was gone, the opportunity lost. He raised his head again as the trail dipped onto the surface of a lake. What to do now? On a flat surface his pursuer's more powerful machine had a deadly advantage. But if it were still a few minutes behind, Lee might be able to reach the other end of the lake and find a place to hide or double back. His momentum made the decision for him as he slid across a patch of ice. Ignoring the protesting throb of his thumb, he squeezed the throttle until he was an arrow slicing between plates of white snow and cobalt sky. After a minute, he risked a glance back, steering just enough to see around his snow plume. The black snowmobile slid down onto the lake and sent up a spurt of white. He was trapped. There was still three quarters of the lake to cross. No chance at all that he could outrun the other sled. The obsidian machine could run circles around his and probably would to force him to slow down until his rider could light a deadly wick. Already he thought he could hear the sound of the hunter gaining. The feeling of exposure crept up his spine. What if he let the bastard get close and rammed the other machine? He might catch an exposed leg, but the odds were more than even that Lee would be badly injured too. Dueling snowmobiles offered no protection. He no sooner framed the question than he caught sight of his antagonist right beside him, pulling quickly past. With only a second to judge the distance, he gasped a breath and pulled the handlebars hard to the right. He missed. By inches. The changed angle of his skis slowed him too quickly, and the tip of his right ski caught the other machine a few centimeters behind the rider's leg, scraped down the length of metal, and nearly caught on the slightly flared rear before it bounced off. That was all that prevented the maneuver from rolling him over. As it was, he had to fight hard to regain control of the rocking metal frame. Sensing Lee's move, the black rider had veered away off the trail into deeper snow. His momentum carried him about ten meters, and his natural impulse to let off on the throttle made him bog down and slow to a stop. At least the prick wasn't immune to fear. Lee's greatest safety still lay among the trees. He had to reach them. He mashed down on the throttle, hurtling past his surprised enemy before the killer could think of lighting a wick. There was even a chance the bottle of gasoline had been flung off into the snow. That might buy Lee a few precious seconds. He was most of the way to the trees before his attacker caught up. This time the man knew better than to pass at close quarters. Counting on the superior power of the black sled, he pulled over into softer snow at the edge of the trail, still gaining in fits and starts. The trees inched closer with maddening slowness. The scene became a frozen horse-track photo finish, two adversaries neck and neck. Sun, snow, scouring wind, howling engines, fused together into one adrenaline-charged interval, survival at the brink. Then the dark line of forest leapt toward them. The black rider tried to force Lee over and pull onto the trail in the lead, but the desperation of his intended victim was greater. Lee held his ground, called the bluff. The other gave in at the last possible second, a moment before he would have flattened himself against a huge pine. Lee had the lead. Death rode behind. The battle had lasted for an eternity, and nothing had changed. But it would. A voice deep in his brain knew that. He'd been dealt a losing hand. The final play came five minutes later. As Lee hurtled into a sharp curve, preparing to shift his weight, a large bird broke from the bushes on his left, fluttering past inches from his head. He was distracted for only an instant, but that was enough. 
His machine roared off the bank into the air, and the slash of snapping branches merged with the tortured whine of the drive track, still at full power but freed of its load. The scream froze his blood, froze time. He saw his hurtling flight as if by the flash of a strobe, right ski caroming off a thick trunk and twisting crazily, cowling dropping to the left, then bucking level as it slammed into a dried branch, pulverizing it, pieces of twig and bark whipping into his visor. The frenzied howl merged into an all-engulfing barrage of sound. His metal steed plunged into the ground, flinging him over the windshield. A thousand thorny fingers tore at his suit and helmet, crackling like gunpowder as they cushioned his fall. A cloud of snow and pine needles began to settle. He rolled upright and spat a mouthful of debris. Dimly aware that he was uncomfortable, he pushed onto his hands and knees and raised his head, just in time to see a black figure standing on the bank above him, swinging an arm. Time to die. With no guidance from a conscious mind, Muscles coiled and sprang, flinging his body backward into the bushes just as the tumbling bottle struck, shattered, and exploded. The spray of flame tore through twigs and needles where his body had been moments before. A wave of fire coursed over the battered arctic cat, swallowing it whole. Lee cartwheeled through shrubbery and rolled in the snow, first from momentum, then deliberately as a blanket of orange and black licked at him. His back slammed into a thick tree. Coughing smoke, he pulled into a crawl and scrambled frantically around its trunk, desperate to hide. The second explosion seemed to shatter the world. A wall of flame roared past him, disintegrating branches and turning needles to ash. Shards of flying metal scissored through the naked stalks left behind, and the clamor hammered his ears. A breaking comber of heat sucked his lungs empty and tossed his body onto his face in the snow. He burrowed into it, scooping handfuls to fling over his back while small noises forced their way from his throat. A huge ball of fire roiled into the air, just as he flipped onto his back to slap at patches of flame on his sleeves. Then his fingers clawed at the fasteners of his helmet and flung it off, shoveling snow into his hair because it felt as if it were on fire too. Rasp of air, crackle of cinders, squeal of melting plastic, chuff of burning fuel. He lay in a waking coma as his coffin was wheeled into a crematorium oven, a misguided acolyte on a bed of coals, meat on a spit. Slowly, slowly, slowly the heat eased, flames retreated, static was penetrated by forest sounds. Incredibly, the world still existed. With painful slowness, he lifted himself to peer around the trunk of the tree. Wisps of smoke obscured the view beyond the burning bush just ahead. Some of the smoke cleared. Behind the curtain of flame, a black shape shimmering in the superheated air, looking for something, looking for a body, moving forward toward the embankment. Lee pummeled his numbed brain cells. They had to find him a place to hide, find a way to live. But suddenly the black figure stood straight, raising its head. The visor of the helmet reflected a tall pillar of smoke rising into the clear sky. The man hesitated, then slowly turned away. Lee heard the roar of an engine, the whine of tracks on snow, and then the sound began to fade. He lay back, breath rasping in and out of overtaxed lungs. Eons later, he staggered to his feet and surveyed the wreckage. The pyre was unrecognizable as a machine of any kind, twisted black bones reaching grotesquely for the sky, and flapping shreds of charred fabric stirred in the oily smoke. He looked over his own body. A patch of nylon above his knee was still smoldering. He stooped over as if in a dream and rubbed some snow into the shriveled cloth. 
Then the pain came. His left arm hung limp, dislocated maybe. As he took a step forward, his right knee almost collapsed under him, and bright agony shot up his body, making him shudder. He leaned his weight against the tree for a moment to gather his courage, then sank to his knees and began to crawl slowly up the bank. There was a sound, an engine sound, but he couldn't tell whether it was coming or going. He didn't know which way to go when he reached the trail. He simply started to walk, limping painfully, trudging on a treadmill while forests slid past like the painted scenery of a diorama. The sound grew louder. Some dim part of his brain noted that he was in the middle of the trail, that he should probably do something about that, but he didn't know what. Before he could decide, a snowmobile came into view around a bend and braked hard. There was a logo on the cowl. It fascinated him. He'd seen it lots of times. Police, that was it. Ontario Provincial Police. For some reason that made him happy. He raised an arm and took another step forward, and collapsed face down in the snow. The next episode of Dead Air is Chapter 18, as the attempts on Lee's life are turning his fear into anger, and police protection isn't welcome. Meanwhile, his new love affair with Candace Ross may not survive all the secrets. You can learn more or buy the book by visiting scottoverton.ca. Thanks to Audionautics.com for the music, and thanks for coming along for the ride. I'm Scott Overton. <laughs>